from KVMR Nevada City. This is Disability Wrap. I'm Anna Acton with my co-host, Carl Sigmund. As the number of coronavirus cases in the U.S. tops 6.8 million, and the number of deaths from COVID-19 tops 200,000, we spend today's show looking at the disproportionate effects of the pandemic on older adults and people with disabilities. We've all heard the harrowing stories in the media about some of the early coronavirus hotspots being nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. But we wanted to go deeper. According to the CDC, 94% of people who died from COVID-19 in the US had at least one other health condition or contributing cause of death. What does this mean for people with disabilities and for older adults? We are also seeing other ways in which the pandemic is impacting the lives of people with disabilities and older adults. Many are experiencing a disruption in community-based long-term services and supports, the services which enable so many of us to live in our communities and get the help we need to do so. We're seeing how the transition to online learning is working really well for some students with disabilities but is leaving others behind. With unemployment numbers soaring, we're seeing people with disabilities being laid off or furloughed at much higher rates than people without disabilities, and once they are laid off, they are having a much harder time finding new work, as compared to their non-disabled peers. And perhaps most strikingly, as the CDC data suggest, we are seeing that the toll that the coronavirus takes on the body can be much more severe for people with underlying health conditions. And the list goes on. And we will get into all of this in a moment. But first, we want to introduce you to our guests. We're joined by a roundtable of people from here in Nevada County and across the country who are looking at this issue from multiple different perspectives. And I just want to add that we recorded this conversation two weeks ago, right as we hit 200,000 COVID-19 related deaths here in the United States. We're airing the first part of this conversation tonight on Disability Wrap and we will air the second half next Monday evening at the same time. So joining us locally is Monet Clark, a healer and eco-feminist performance dance video and photographic artist in Nevada City. Monet grew up in Nevada County and has been a guest on Disability Rap in the past to share her story of living with a neuroimmune disease. Monet recently had symptoms consistent with COVID-19 and is here to share with us about her experience with COVID-19 as a person with a disability. From Sacramento, California, Dr. Leonard Abdudo is joining us. Len is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences and the director of the Mind Institute at the University of California, Davis. His research is focused broadly on the development of language across the lifespan in individuals with neurodevelopmental disorders and the family context for language development. He recently co-authored a letter to the editor of the American Journal of Psychiatry entitled, The Impact of COVID-19 on Individuals with Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, Clinical and Scientific Priorities. And we have Meg O'Connell, who's joining us from St. Augustine, Florida. Meg is the founder and CEO of Global Disability Inclusion, which works with companies, foundations, nonprofits, universities, and government agencies to help them realize the business benefit of disability inclusion. Meg has worked with some of the world's top brands across a variety of industries and has been implementing and leading disability inclusion efforts for large organizations since the mid-1990s. She is an experienced human resource professional who has won numerous awards for her work developing talent management strategies, customer solutions, 
employee engagement and corporate marketing and branding campaigns, all geared towards um, including people with disabilities in the workforce, workplace, and marketplace. Welcome. And from Los Angeles, Danny Chan is with us. Danny is a senior staff attorney at Justice in Aging, a national organization that uses the power of law to fight senior poverty by securing access to affordable health care and economic security for older adults with limited resources. Justice in Aging focuses their efforts primarily on those who have been marginalized and excluded from justice, such as women, people of color, members of the LGBTQ community, and people with limited English proficiency. Danny joined Justice and Aging's healthcare team in 2014. He previously served as a rotating law clerk for the U.S. District Court in Los Angeles and participated in the Fulbright English Teaching Program as a fellow in Macau, China. So I want to welcome you all to Disability Wrap. It's great to have you here. And, um, you know, this discussion around COVID-19 uh, we keep on talking time and time again about the disproportional impact it has on people with disabilities and older adults. We thought we would start today with uh, Monet and talking about her experience um, as a person with a disability and kind of navigating COVID-19. Monet, um, can you describe your experience um, with your health um, and around COVID-19 and what you experienced? Um, I think it was back in, in March or so. It was in March. I, um, uh, on art business, traveled to New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco in February. Not very smart. <laughs> and came back uh, in early March. And um, before the lockdown, I... Um, started quarantining and um, looking at uh, what natural health um, medicines would be best for prevention. But before I really got on a program, um, I, I got hit with really what I realize now and through my healthcare providers was a low-grade fever. I didn't have a high-grade fever. And so I still thought, okay, this isn't COVID. Um, it's since come to my attention, and I think this is really important for people with um, autoimmune disease to recognize that you may not have a normative immune response and you may not have a high fever. You may have a low-grade fever, which feels kind of clammy, you feel wiped out. Um, I felt sweaty, you know, I was sweating a lot, but I wasn't, I, I wasn't in the high fever zone. So um, that went on for several days. Um, before I called my primary care physician who actually I've switched since this happened because that um, person that takes my um, Medicare and Medi-Cal insurance um, really never knew how to treat my autoimmune disease which is common and I've since gotten someone who has a lot more experience with it that I, I didn't realize was in Nevada County all this time but anyway, you know, her opinion was, well, it's not COVID because, you know, you have a, you have a sore throat. I had, I started getting a, a scratchy throat and um, I, I called her actually because I started getting short of breath. And then I was like, wait a minute, this, this isn't right, you know? And I felt like a weight in the back of my throat and it started to go down into my chest. It almost felt like I had a layer of cement. And I, I figured this is a really good chance that it is COVID. And she said, well, there's only so many tests in the county and yada, yada. And if you start to get worse, worse and you can't breathe, then go to the hospital. Well, by then you're really far along. You know, that was kind of in the early 
in the early stages of it hitting America, everybody was being sent home and said, come back when you can't breathe. But, you know, you want to treat an infection right when it hits you. So fortunately, I have a naturopath doctor who she said, you need to get a nebulizer immediately. I ordered one and, and uh, got it shipped in 24 hours. I think it took two days. And she started me on a program of medicines, breathing it directly into my lungs. And she, um, based on all my other symptoms, she she started treating me like it was COVID. Um, she got me uh, on the list to get a test through the drive-thru in Nevada County at the hospital, and they ran out the day I was going. So I went untested through the majority of um, what I was fighting. I didn't get tested till about two and a half months later, and, and I was I tested negative. I got to where I was bedridden. My boyfriend had to wait on me. It was super scary when I, I really was having trouble breathing. But it was never to the point where I couldn't breathe, but it, it was labored. And, it, you know, I felt it growing in my chest. Um, and I was super weak. Um, and um, eventually, it, 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 uh, we would hit it back, and then it would come right back really strong. And that's where she was like, this is COVID, because that, that's kind of one of the characteristics, is it's super, super aggressive. And now, um, post-COVID, you know, it felt like my lungs had shriveled up. I could barely walk across the room without struggling for breath. That was really the most awful part because I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be like this forever. And there's really a lot, of, not very much information about what to do at that point. And I, again, went, nat went with natural medicine. I used an herbal extract um, that my doctor told me about, and it's really good for rejuvenating the lungs and for asthma and so forth. And whenever I get inflamed with my neuroimmune illness symptoms, my lungs get worse again. So now I have an added kind of weak spot in my overall health. Thank That's you so that. much, Monet, for, for sharing your story. I mean, this is what we were hearing, especially in the early days, difficulty with accessing um, support and getting the testing that we needed. Um, and then also just the ongoing um, impact that um, I've heard story after story of people um, really taking a long time to recover um, from COVID-19, especially if you already had an underlying health condition. So thank yeah, you so much for sharing. I should just mention there's fatigue to a different kind of fatigue where I need a lot more naps. So, you mm -hmm. know, that's, that's another residual. But, but I think you can come back from it. You have to work at it, though. Thank you so much, Monet. I want to bring Denny in right now. We just heard from Monet, and that is just one story. We are dealing with thousands and thousands of these stories, all across really the world, but all across the U.S. and here in California. Could you put this in a bit of context? Where are we? Why are we dying at higher rates than the general public? Sure, Carl, I'll try. It's a very, it's a big question. Um, you know, the question of where we are and how we got here is there's a lot to unpack. Um, let me first start off by saying that I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk um, in all of 2020 that people just want to go back to normal. People want to go back to how things were. And I think it's precisely why things were the way they are that we ended up here. Um, so I'm not a big fan of going back to normal because I think that going back to normal actually means returning to the same systems that produce this outcome. Um, one other theme that I wanna highlight in talking about this is sort of the disparate impact 
of COVID-19, particularly on older adults and people with disabilities who are of color. Um, we have seen that in all the data. You know, CMS now is monthly releasing data that outlines uh, COVID infections and hospitalizations across the country. And we know that um, people who are duly eligible, so people who have both Medicare and Medicaid, like Monet, um, are almost four times as likely to get COVID and 4.5 times more likely to end up hospitalized from COVID. And so we're talking about people at that intersection who are either 65 or older and have uh, Medicare through age or have Medicare through a, through a disability and who are lower income. And even when we set aside that intersection of disability, age, and poverty, if we look, just look at race and just look at who is being infected and hospitalized uh, uh, in terms of racial identity and racial background, all across the board, people of color, Medicare beneficiaries are hospitalized at higher rates than white Medicare beneficiaries. That's true across the board for every racial group, <laughs> except for white Americans. Um, and then when we look specifically at that intersection between Medicare, Medicaid, and race, we see that it all gets even more compounded. Those same systems that produced disparate health outcomes in the first place are really eating people alive at the COVID intersection. So we know that, for example, um, Black duly eligible individuals who have both Medicare and Medicaid um, are 1.25 times as likely to get infected and almost twice as likely to end up hospitalized as white dual eligibles. Those are significant increases. And if we shift and look sort of further down into the, the life cycle at skilled nursing facilities, Anna mentioned at the very beginning that there's already been a lot of reporting throughout the pandemic about the disparate impact about people in congregate settings. And in particular, some reporting, especially from the New York Times, that shows when you have more of a community or a population of Black or Latino older adults in nursing facilities, those rates just skyrocket. I mean, it's basically, it's, it's very disproportionate. So, you know, how we got here is systems of oppression <laughs> that have kept people um, you know, primarily reliant on uh, social safety net programs that have kept people impoverished um, and produce disparate health outcomes. And what it takes now is the flashlight of COVID-19 to shine a really bright, but very, you know, clear light on how these health disparities work. I'll also say, you know, I think Monet's uh, story to open up with that was a really good idea and really helpful because um, these are just reported cases. These are just reported infections and reported hospitalizations. We, at the beginning in February and March, did not have an infrastructure as a country to adequately test and support people throughout this pandemic. Um, so these are all likely undercounts. <laughs> and certainly there's been some reporting that suggests that if you look at the death and hospitalizations of people of color, particularly older adults and people with disabilities in 2020 compared just to 2019. And you would assume just, you know, that it would be somewhat similar except for COVID. We see that the COVID numbers are not capturing all of the extra 
additional hospitalizations and deaths that we typically would see in any other year. So unfortunately, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Thank you so much, Jenny. Um, what's really, I think, been eye-opening through this process is seeing you know, those issues that older adults, people with disabilities already were dealing with um, and, and struggling to get their needs met. This, the COVID-19 pandemic has just highlighted those and brought them front to center. Whether we're talking about access to affordable housing and living in the community with the services that you need, access to food, isolation issues, all those are really um, being highlighted during this pandemic. I want to go over um, to um, Lynn and ask you about some of the research and what you are seeing um, around impacts of COVID-19, especially on those with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, what are you seeing around lack um, or disruption of care and services and supports for people um, yeah. because of COVID-19? You know, one of the things that, that we saw right at the beginning was that um, in terms of how people with intellectual developmental disabilities were impacted was uh, we know that for so many people, the systems of support that we have are people-based, right? Direct care providers that provide access to, uh, you know, provide care in, in home or provide support uh, to travel uh, and so on. So we knew right from the beginning when we started with social isolation that people with intellectual development disabilities were gonna have so much of their supports taken away. Um, and then we shifted, um, uh, I think, quickly and probably appropri appropriately to doing as much as we can through technology, right? So we all began to live on Zoom and we provided, uh, we did telehealth. So we provided care in lots of different ways through uh, kind of video-based teleconferencing. Uh, schools at the end of the school year switched to online learning and those sorts of things. Um, the, um, the problem with that is that uh, we also have pretty good data suggesting that for many people with disabilities, this is, they're gonna have less access to internet gonna, that's reliable uh, and things like that. And so that's gonna continue to put them at a disadvantage. And we also know that if we just take school, for example, for many uh, children who have special needs, um, there are adaptations to the curriculum that need to be made so that they can access it as, as fully as possible. And um, just saying, okay, we're gonna do everything online educationally, we know that's not gonna work for so many of our students. And, um, and so we really weren't, you know, obviously prepared in many respects for this uh, pandemic, but I think that that lack of preparation certainly hit people with intellectual developmental disabilities quite hard cutting them off from uh, educational opportunities, cutting them off from vocational, uh, from their jobs, uh, because they didn't have uh, access to either travel or job support, job coaches. Um, certainly access to health became more difficult. Um, you know, telehealth works fine um, in, for many things and for many people, but it might not work well if someone is minimally verbal and has difficulty communicating uh, um, uh, on their own, and so that becomes a problem. Uh, and and cer certainly, you know, our social lives have turned into, you know, um, uh, Zoom, right? And so I think that that also didn't work for many people with disabilities. And so we're beginning to understand, to at least some extent, kind of the the impacts on people with intellectual and developmental disabilities that we could have predicted would happen, 
um, uh, by social isolation. And I think that uh, the, the next issue, I think that, and maybe we can return to this at some point, there's kind of the short-term impact and there's a long-term impact. Um, we know that the economy has been impacted in ways that are gonna be long lasting. We also know that whenever we see recessions and financial cuts to budgets in schools and elsewhere, they tend not to be uh, equitable, right? And we know that people with intellectual disabilities or uh, social support programs tend to get cut the deepest. And so I think that we're at this point now where, um, you know, we could be seeing really enduring impacts of COVID for many, many years, unless we're really, really cautious and advocate for our populations. Thank you so much, Len. These are all really important points, and I want to get back to them in a bit. But first, I want to bring Meg into the conversation. Meg, in April, your group, Global Disability Inclusion, conducted a national independent survey of over 500 participants in order to measure the impact and outlook of COVID-19 on those with and without disabilities. The study really focused on employment and lack thereof. You conducted this survey in April, which was really near the start of the pandemic here in the United States. I know your group has been continuing to do research in this area, and we'll get into that in a bit. But could you start by laying out your April survey and some of your key findings? Yeah, absolutely. So when COVID hit, we were all surprised and knew that this was dramatically changing our lives and we knew it very rapidly and quickly and the world of work was going to dramatically change and based on the work that we do with companies in helping them diversify their workforce to include people with disabilities we know unfortunately that disability is often the forgotten diversity segment People with disabilities are left out of the general conversation in the world of work in many ways. And, you know, just as Denny's been talking and Len and Monet about, you know, the gaps for people with disabilities that exists in the world of work too. So we wanted to early on understand how quickly people were with disabilities were being impacted, what types of impacts they were having and across the board and all of the questions that we asked and to the members of the panel are not gonna be surprised by this, but there was not a single area where people with disabilities fared better than those without disabilities. So people with disabilities were losing their jobs faster, were being furloughed faster, were having to shut down their own businesses. And if they were able to work from home at a greater percentage, they were fearful within the next 90 days that they would lose their job. And the most startling piece was that people with disabilities overwhelmingly felt were feeling the dramatic impacts of economic insecurity during this time, whether if they weren't feeling it immediately in April, they knew it was coming and there wasn't a lot they could do to help prepare for that. You know, additionally, we saw people with disabilities knew this was gonna be a monumental change for them and that they were likely gonna have to shift industries. They were going to have to reskill, retool, upskill uh, to look for other employment after this happened because either their industry was failing or they were just being laid off and they knew that they were going to have to start preparing for something different. 
So we're actually scheduled for our six month follow-up for this is, is going out uh, next week. So we'll have new data. We don't have the follow-up yet. Um, but you know, we have seen that in the world of work, it's been a two-sided coin. There are things that have been remarkable about the way corporate America has responded to this and getting um, up to speed on Zoom and working remotely and everyone can work from remotely. So we've had a cultural shift in accepting that. It's no longer a work-life balance conversation. It is how do we survive as a business in this environment and make that work? And in many ways, this has opened up a lot of opportunities for people with disabilities to be able to still remain employed because now they can work from home. And it also makes the case for people with disabilities who have long been saying, I know I can make this work, let me work from home. The proof is here now for companies and they understand that that's gonna shift. And lastly, I'll say the focus on mental health has really been um, across the board, uh, really heightens awareness and sensitivity. The number of people relapsing from addictions is on the rise up uh, 30%. People who are concerned or having suicidal thoughts, um, domestic violence, all of those things that people are encountering or struggling to manage um, because of this, this COVID stress. So, companies and foundations are really pulling together resources and tools and tips uh, for their employees on how to manage this, offering employee assistance program resources and multiple other things to help folks really manage their stress and their mental health better. And with that, we're seeing an increase of disclosure in the workplace of people not just uh, significant disability, but talking about, I have a learning disability and Zoom is difficult for me and here's why and here's what I might need to make this work better for me. Or I'm someone who doesn't want to return to work because I have asthma and this is concerning to me that I'm at risk. So companies are getting smarter about having those conversations. Um, it's just been in the last five years or so that we've seen companies really working to get smarter, but that has escalated in such a dramatic way over the last seven months in companies wanting to understand how to accommodate um, what they can do and offer and what capabilities they need to develop around disability and employment at work. You've been listening to our conversation about the disproportional effects the coronavirus pandemic is having on older adults and people with disabilities. The last voice you heard was Meg O'Connell, founder and CEO of Global Disability Inclusion. We also spoke with Dr. Leonard Abadudo, director of the Mind Institute at UC Davis, Denny Chan, a senior staff attorney at Justice and Aging, and Monet Clark, a healer and eco-feminist performance-based video and photographic artist right here in Nevada City. We recorded this conversation two weeks ago. You just heard the first half, and we'll bring you the second half next week at the same time. You may have noticed that this is a new time slot for disability rap here on KVMR. 
We have traditionally aired the show from noon to 1 p.m. on the first Friday of the month. We are switching this time slot to 6.30 to 7 p.m. on the first Monday of the month. Starting in November, we will broadcast monthly at that time. This month, however, we are bringing you two additional shows. Next Monday, October 12th at 6.30 p.m., we are bringing you part two of the conversation you just heard. And then on the third Monday, October 19th at 6.30 p.m., we'll bring you highlights from Nevada County's Education Workshop for Voters with Disabilities. This workshop will take place via Zoom on Friday, October 16th at 2.30 p.m. To find out how to participate in that workshop, go to freed.org vote. This show is produced and edited by my co-host, Carl Simon. Special thanks to Sam Gertis for her support. To listen to the show again, go to free.org slash disability We will also release a podcast soon, so stay tuned for that. I'm Anna Acton with Carl Sigmund for another edition of Disability Wrap.